Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, March the 3rd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast wrap of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are Jennifer Bray and Pat Leahy. Hi, guys. Hello. Good afternoon. We're going to leave the Windsor framework to one side for the moment because we had a lengthy podcast about it just a couple of days ago. There have been developments and I'm sure we'll be continuing to follow them in in Northern Ireland and in London over the weeks to come. But let's just look at some stories closer, closer to our homes anyway. And let's start, Jen, with the, the story of Niall Collins, the Fianna Fáil junior minister who stood up in the Dáil yesterday um, on foot of... Uh, an article published by the Ditch website about a planning application he made for a home in Limerick more than 20 years ago. Yeah, so this whole controversy surrounds, uh, like you say, a planning application that Niall Collins made in Limerick 20 years ago. So basically what happened was he applied to Limerick County Council in 2001 for permission to build a home um, on land that's owned by his, uh, that was owned by his father in Patrickswell, which is in Limerick. Um, the area uh, is what's described as a pressure area. And so basically what that is, is at the time was an area where there were basically stricter rules around development because of resource issues and and um, geographical spread. So there were 11 such areas in Limerick at the time and where residential development is only allowed on certain grounds. And the area he wanted to build in was one such area. Um, so the application was made before he became a councillor in 2004, before he became a TD in 2007, I think. Um, and on the application, uh, it says that Niall Collins intended to build on this land and move out of his parents' house. Um, it wasn't mentioned that he already had a property uh, in Doyle. So Niall Collins made a statement in the Dáil yesterday evening after topical questions, seemed to be kind of hastily arranged and people were kind of caught unawares. Um, In the statement, he outlined how, according to planning rules at the time, he was fully entitled to build on that land under two conditions. Um, One was the fact by virtue that he was the son of a long-term resident landholder. And the second was that he lived in this pressure area that I described before 1990. What he didn't answer was why the application said he was living with his parents when it appears he actually owned a house with his wife in Limerick City at the time where he where he was living. Um, the only time he went near this question, and it was only to kind of, you know, glance off it almost, was when he said, and this is a quote from, from his speech in the Dáil yesterday, uh, whether I had stated that or not, that being uh, ownership and, and the fact he lived in that house in Dúrdoil, whether I had stated that or not was immaterial to the planning education process 23 years ago. So the issue here, effectively, he wanted to build in this land, family land. It was a pressure zone. He had to fulfil certain requirements. It was reported in the ditch that he, if he had a property previously uh, in that area, that that basically would have excluded him from being eligible for that. But uh, I had a look through the the planning laws at the time. It was the 1999 Limerick Development Plan. And that does state that there are certain rules under which you can build on that land and those two uh, requirements that he outlined are do appear to me to be accurate. The the really big outstanding question is why he didn't say that 
he had this property where he lived and why he said he lived at his parents' house. Um, and we're still trying to get clarity on whether that was an inaccuracy or what is the story there. So, Pat, when the story broke uh, earlier in the week, it looked very like the previous Damien English story, which uh, the ditch also broke and which caused Damien English to uh, to resign fairly promptly, actually, from his position. But uh, as Jen lays it out there, there are some differences here, um, which have been which have been pointed out by by Niall Collins that that this piece of information, be it correct or incorrect, would not necessarily have had a material impact upon a decision to permit him to to build on that land. And I suppose that is very important, isn't it? But it does beg the question still, and the question is still hanging there, and our colleague Cormac McQuinn pinpoints it pretty well in today's newspaper too, which is, why did he give this incorrect information? And we, we, we're still waiting for an answer to that. And perhaps we will get one, but it is curious that Niall Collins would go to the bother of organising a statement in the Dáil, delivering a statement in the Dáil yesterday, um, albeit when most TDs had buggered off for the week, but uh, but nonetheless delivering uh, a statement in the Dáil, presumably with the intention of answering these questions and putting it to bed and drawing a line uh, under the affair, but not make any mention of this apparent inaccuracy in the application that was submitted under his name. Now, he does seem to me, as Jen has outlined, to be on pretty solid ground when he says the ditch was wrong to say that he wouldn't have got planning uh, permission if he had uh, correctly filled out the application form. When he says that there were inaccuracies in the piece, he seems to be, uh, he seems to be on solid ground in that regard. But I- I'm not sure if he thought that everybody was just going to forget about the other part of the story, which was him saying that he lived at his parents' house and wanted to build a family home so he could move out of his parents' house. And whether, you know, he filled out that planning application form or whether somebody did it on his behalf, presumably he's responsible for it. And it's just curious that he wouldn't address that yesterday. So say maybe he uh, maybe he will. And maybe nothing will, will ultimately hang on that because it does seem to me to be immaterial to the decision of the planning authority uh, in the final analysis. But it's still an inaccuracy on the... Uh, on the planning application form. And I doubt if he will get away with simply refusing to comment uh, about it. So presumably he will have to comment, Jen, but is the general sense in the in the dole that he's probably safe and he won't be for the chopping block as Damien English and Robert Troy were before him? Well, the question is, who's calling for him to, to be on the chopping block? Who's calling for his head to roll? And as far as I can see, nobody. Um, and that's what it comes down to, really, in politics. You know, I think the media can cover issues, but if, if politicians aren't aren't picking up the gauntlet there, then then that's the real that's where the real story is. It strikes me that Sinn Fein have been very quiet, um, surprisingly quiet on this. To the best of my knowledge, they either haven't commented at all this week, or if they have commented somewhere, it's completely passed me by. Um, and I think that's really interesting, and I would wonder why that is, because normally, as you know, we've covered many many times. Sinn Féin have been on the attack since day one of this government. They pledged to be the loudest uh, opposition in the history of the state. And on this issue, they're notably quiet. But so too this morning are other parties like the SOC Dems um, and the Labour Party. I they were I picked them out in particular because earlier in the week, they were the parties who were saying, you know, he needs to make a statement and he needs to answer X, Y, Z questions, etc. And to the best of my knowledge, this morning, uh, there's kind of silence. So... That being the case, um, and even notwithstanding this out with this uh, this outstanding question, 
Um, like, let's say he does come out and say it's an inaccuracy. Who knows? It strikes me that I think this saga will probably come to an end unless there's some other um, bombshell in the Sunday papers, effectively. I have a hypothesis, Hugh, though, if you'd like to hear it. Oh, I, I was just about to put one forward. It might be the same one. So you go with your one first. Well, great minds of fools. But mine is that perhaps uh, perhaps parties, I mean, we, we've seen the some discomfort in Sinn Féin when they made an awful lot of noise uh, about Pascal Donoghue's electoral declarations, but then went into a very embarrassed silence when questions were raised about their own uh, spending declarations and, uh, and finances. And it may be that parties in uh, our, our TDs, in all parties and none, would not relish a systematic, uh, a, a systematic examination of their own planning, uh, planning history. Now, as I, say, I have no evidence, I have no evidence to 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 support that. But it seems to me to be a possible, um, uh, a possible examination. I have no experience of the of the, the planning system myself. I. I I resolutely stand in favour of the right of every freeborn Irish man and woman to build a big yellow bungalow in the countryside with, with dormer windows and Doric columns and perhaps some eagles on the gates. But I've no direct experience of the uh, of the the planning process. But people who have tell me that um, it can be uh, it can be a trying experience and uh, and perhaps. TDs don't want to revisit that themselves. Yeah, I think that comment you can we can take it that you can you can take uh, the man out of Tipperary, but you can't take Tipperary out of the uh, out of the man. <laughs> My hypothesis was was exactly the same as yours, by the way. So so I won't bother repeating it. We we'll move on for the moment. We'll see what happens to that. But another member of the doll uh, was in the news a lot this week. Holly Cairns, um, without a contest, became leader of the Social Democrats. And your interview with her just went up on IrishTimes.com in the last couple of hours, John. Sure did. That's we we operate speedily now. You know, we get the news to our to our readers instantly. Um, well, yeah, so, so I sat down. Let's not get carried away. <laughs> it's at least three days late. No, um, yeah, I sat down yesterday with Holly Cairns, um, just to kind of get an idea of you know how she kind of rose to prominence, how she became a party leader. Um, she's an interesting. She's an interesting party leader. I think. Firstly, obviously, she's the youngest now party leader in the Dáil. Um, you know, she's a woman, a rural woman. She's a Cork Southwest TD. Um, I was kind of struck a little bit by her description of her kind of early life in, in terms of going through school, going through college. It struck me that she kind of had these wilderness years where she didn't really know what to do. I mean, she was either in Liverpool or Waterford, Dundalk. She was in Romania and then she was in working in an orphanage and she was in Malta and then I think the I think the spark for her about politics came when she was canvassing in uh to in the the Together for Yes campaign to repeal the Eighth Amendment in 2018 and she said that the first door the very first door she knocked at a woman basically answered and said I don't think I'll vote at all and she said well here's the reasons why you should and here's the reasons why I think you should vote yes and the woman said, well, yes, absolutely. That makes totally sense. That makes total sense. And I will, I will vote yes. And she believed that that was the case. And she kind of thought, well, if this is obviously how things get done, knocking on doors, convincing people, etc. So politics must be for me. Um, now, she had never voted, which I thought was interesting. She never voted in an election previously, except for 2011 election. I think she, I don't think she canvassed for David Norris, but I think she supported his campaign because she supported marriage equality and thought that he would be the person who uh, could ideally push that. Um, and her rise, I think over, you'll notice from the headlines during the week in different newspapers and online has been described kind of as 
meteoric um, and, and a very quick. And, and to a certain extent, that's true, because it is very rare that a newly elected TD, um, someone who only became, a, a, you know, a councillor uh, in 2019, um, would already be a party leader, a bit of a, of a small party, a, a fledgling party. Um, so that's kind of her path to here. Um, but she said herself she had no intentions uh, of of she never visualized herself as the leader of Sockdown. She had no ambition like that. She wasn't maneuvering behind the scenes. She wasn't like pushing for a heave or anything like that. Uh, it just turned out that she I think people got behind her because firstly, she has a really high national profile. And I think they thought she is the face of a generation, which is how she presented herself in her first leaders questions. Face of a generation that have been locked out of home ownership. And I think when Sinn Féin have gone on the attack on housing, naturally and rightfully so, um, I think now they're trying to carve out their space in the doll of saying, well, here is the voice of that generation and here's what she has to say. So I, th- I think that maybe there's some of the reasons behind it. So time might tell if, if uh, the observation I'm about to make proves wrong, Pat, but it seems to me that this might end up being a relatively astute move because it it aligns the visible, prominent leadership of the party with what seems to me to be whatever energy drives the party, which is, as Jen says, those kinds of experience of the progressive social movements and the two referendums of the last of the last decade, which brought a, a younger generation into politics, perhaps for different reasons than other generations had come in before. So as a standard bearer, uh, at the very least, um, she seems she seems to fit. Yeah, um, I think it's not implausible, you know, to see Holly Kearns, I suppose, part leading and part catching that sort of wave of, you know, youth, I was going to say youthful, but, you know, I guess you get to your mid-30s, I'm not sure you could claim to be very young uh, anymore, hey. but uh, but uh, shall we say under 40 disconsolation with, you know, not just this government, but with a sense that uh, the political establishment has wittingly or unwittingly conspired to diminish the life chances of lots of people under 40 who who graduated or, or, or came of age in the middle of uh, the financial crash, who, like Holly Kearns, many of whom will have worked abroad, those of them who have come home find themselves priced out of the housing, uh, out of the housing market, or at least out of the sort of housing market that they would like to uh, inhabit, and I just think there is a lot of votes there, and there will be a lot of votes there in the next election, and very often in Irish elections, there is a swing, and all those votes go to one destination. Um, I remember many of them go towards. One destination. Many of them went to Sinn Féin last time. Also, many of them went to the Greens. Let's not forget that the Greens had their best election ever uh, by some distance in 2020. So that my, it was a rather long-winded way of saying this. I think there's a bunch of votes to be had. And I think that Holly Kearns is in a good position as of now to pitch for those votes. Whether she gets them and gets them in sufficient numbers in the right places is entirely uh, another matter. But I think that as of now, she's in a good position uh, to make a pitch for them. Sure. And one of the things that, that I thought was interesting in, in your interview, Jen, was you asked her what were the key points of difference between the Social Democrats and Sinn Féin. And she pointed to the question of being serious and, uh, about climate change and suggested that they weren't currently in their policies. And that that does seem interesting to me, both in terms of 
the Sock Dems being able to differentiate themselves from Sinn Féin, but also that they're playing on the same field as the Greens, who will be under pressure in some constituencies, and who the Social Democrats are likely to be competing with, with seats in, in some constituencies. Oh, they absolutely will be, yeah. And I think it is, an, it's kind of an obvious question when the, when Holly Cairns, and it's not just in this interview, but over the last couple of days, she talks about change. Um, I was really struck in her first speech to, it was just after she'd spoken to party members and it was her first press conference about how she, you know, if you look at the speech, it's very high up, it's the appetite for change. And it struck me as very Mary Lou MacDonald, the kind of speech that she would make, that they would position themselves in that way. When I was talking to her yesterday, she said she believed that the tide would turn. She was saying that she could feel this when she was kind of out canvassing or in her constituency or or talking to, you know, people outside of the Leinster House bubble, that she feels that the tide is turning and the people, I think the quote she gave, will will opt for the kind of change that we want, which begs the obvious question, you know, Sinn Féin have, are beating that drum and have been doing and they, that was their election in 2020, you know, saying that the change was in the air. What's the difference between the Sock Dems and Sinn Féin? And she kind of like paused a little bit and said, zoned in on climate action, like you say. And she said, I, th- I kind of thought she ca- couched her language a little bit because she was saying, I don't think we can delay anymore. She said, I don't know if Sinn Féin don't want to say that the kind of things they do to take on the climate crisis, whether she kind of speculated, is it because they're on a rise and they want to keep votes? Uh, it, and she also said there was a danger as political parties that you try to become everything to everybody and end up becoming nothing to anybody. But then she kind of immediately went in and said, no, I'm not saying the Sinn Féin have done that, but I don't know where they stand on climate. So it was kind of, to me, a half an attack. It wasn't a full attack on Sinn Féin, but that's obviously an area where they've identified them as being weak. And we know like that Sinn Féin have been very reticent to, one example would be to name those kind of uh, sectoral emissions targets. Um, I think we're all still a little bit unclear on on that. And, and many times over the last two years, we've asked where exactly does Sinn Féin stand on climate action? Um, so they're, they're obviously zoning in on that. But like you say, that also is relevant to the Green Party, who they will also be fighting for, for votes with. Um, the interesting thing, I think, when we get to the election will be the question of have the Green Party done enough in government? Have they achieved the things that they said they would? Has it impressed the public? Have they kept their promises? Where does that leave them electorally? Or will they suffer the fate of so many other smaller parties, be you know eaten up by the larger parties, uh, take the flack of the, the, the mistakes of, of the entire coalition um, and suffer at the polls? And will that benefit the Sock Dems? And then, of course, when you're thinking about who will benefit who, then you start thinking about the last election and the fact that so many Sinn Féin votes went because they didn't run enough candidates to other parties uh, on the left. So Holly Cairns herself picked up more than 3,000 Sinn Féin transfers. I think it was when Paul Hayes was eliminated. Could be corrected on that, but I think that's when it was. And, uh, you know, if, if, if Sinn Féin had have had a correct strategy for the support that was there, those other parties would have lost out, like her own seat. So she's got a struggle there herself. And that's the first thing. Now, I, they'll throw the kitchen sink at it. Of course they will. Um, but there's no underestimating the fact that the challenge starts with her seat, let alone moving on to building branches in the rest of the country, let alone getting the party beyond 2% in the polls, which is absolutely miserable. And then, you know, getting to the stage where they can come back with more than six seats, which was a good get last time, and present themselves then with the question of, do we go into government, you know? I think if I just came in on that point, Hugh, I think that is a that's a key. Jen touched on it there. That's that's a key challenge for her in opposition to differentiate herself, differentiate her party 
from the other parts of the opposition. She's not going to win all that many votes by being anti-government. You know, that doesn't differentiate her from all the other anti-government votes, most of which are now going to Sinn Féin. So challenge for her and for the other opposition parties, I'm writing a little bit about this in column tomorrow, is, uh, is how do they differentiate themselves from Sinn Féin from the other opposition parties? Indeed it is. We'll leave it there. We're going to take a, a quick break. Before we do, just to remind you all that uh, you can read Jen's article on irishtimes.com right now. And in order to read it and all the many other very readable articles on irishtimes.com, you should really make sure that you're a subscriber. If you're not, do go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe. There are various levels of subscription available. And we might introduce a new one, which will give you a heads up about the Irish Times' plans to overthrow the next government, which is what we'll be discussing <laughs> after this break. So you're very welcome back. Pat and Jen are still here. We were discussing one um, left of centre party just before the break, the Sock Dems. Uh, we're turning now to another somewhat further left party, People Before Profit, who are in the news because of an interesting document they published uh, today. Yes, indeed, Hugh. Um, the, the case for a left government getting rid of Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael has been published by People Before Profit. Um, charge three euros, though I am slightly tickled to admit that the uh, Irish Times got around the profit motive by, uh, by buying one copy of it and then sharing it with, uh, with everybody else. And it is, um, it's a document, as uh, they published by People for Profit, that is uh, making the case for a, a left-wing government, um, for excluding uh, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Labour Party, uh, not quite excluding Sinn Féin, but they are nervous about uh, Sinn Féin, particularly its uh, tendencies, its perceived tendencies as they see it, uh, towards making compromises with the political centre and their willingness to go into government with either Fianna Fáil or, uh, or Fine Gael. And it is, um, I mean, it's an entertainingly undergraduate in its tone. Uh, I thought about it this morning. Uh, but it is unashamedly revolutionary in uh, in its content. Uh, you know, it talks about the, the seizing of assets, nationalisation of industry, changing the constitution, abolishing the old, getting rid of the old constitution, the replacement of parliamentary democracy by people's assemblies and, uh, and, uh, and so forth. It also warns that... Um, uh, that the uh, the establishment will not take any of this lying down, and if uh, following the election of a left wing government, that the uh, the left wing government should uh, be prepared for the establishment to seek to destroy it using the guardy and uh, and the army uh, uh, in the manner of uh, Chile in nineteen nineteen seventy three, uh, I think it was, uh, which strikes me as a Somewhat hyperbolic claim, but uh, but but uh, but there you are. Uh, the guards and the uh, and the army may have to be resisted uh, by people power on the streets. Um, so uh, so yeah, there you are. Um, and all uh, and all this uh, for just uh, three euros online. 
And I should say that the Irish Times and uh, the Irish Independent, and I believe RTE, maybe um, may also be involved in this in this attempt. Yeah, to I, I, I think that's a, legitimate government. That's a working group that neither of us are um, are, are involved yeah, in. I'm a, I'm a bit upset that I haven't been invited to those meetings. Pat. Well, it may be that you are. Um, it may be that you are. Your your politics is uh, is suspect, and uh, that your 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 place uh, is not seen to be uh, around the polished mahogany table with the other gentlemen with military decorations and bushy moustaches that uh, no doubt will be uh, will be running the show once the people before profit government wins 100 seats in the next uh, in the next government so Jen, what are we to make of this? Um, apart from um, the uh, rolling around the floor laughing, um, which Pat is now currently doing, having given his straight face summation of, of the document. Nobody denies that um, power resides in various different places and not just in the dull when it comes to running any society. That's true of any democratic society. Nobody denies that the, you know, the press exerts power. Nobody denies that in some countries, the forces of law and order and military forces uh, perpetuate certain structures of power. But really comparing the current state of affairs in Ireland in 2023 to the overthrow of Salvador Allende in 1973 does sound a bit, as Pat says, undergraduate to me. Yeah, I really don't think you can compare the two. And that's probably all I'll say about that. Um, I, I do have a lot of thoughts about this document. Um, I've been thinking about it probably a little bit too much. Because, right, here's the thing, right, this this isn't just a document which is a cry for votes. It's an attack on the government. It's an attack on Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, that's all there in the title. Uh, it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. But it's also an attempt to put this kind of some clear blue water between PBP and Sinn Féin. Um, yeah. You know, for PBP to define themselves as the real left, as opposed to Sinn Féin, who they present here as the pretenders. You know, they say at one stage in the document that Sinn Féin cannot be trusted to carry through a consistently left program of government. Um, and then I think it's pretty much the next statement, the next sentence, they say people before profit recognises that a lot of people basically will vote for Sinn Féin and that's why they will commit in advance of an election to vote for Mary Lou Macdonald as Taoiseach. And then they talk about going into a coalition with Sinn Féin. I mean, on one hand to say this is a party that you cannot trust to be, you know, implement the politics of the left, um, Meanwhile, we will absolutely vote for her as Taoiseach and we will definitely go into government with them. But here's what makes us different to them. We're radical and they're not. They are wearing the clothes, but we are walking the walk. That's what the document says to me. But there are some striking claims. Like the media stuff I do find funny. Um, like some, some of it is legitimate. You know, it's attacks on Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael, policies of the last decade. They zone in on the housing crisis, an absolutely fair line of attack. Um, you know, talk about the fact that so many TDs and senators are landlords. That's true. Um, you know, about the, the health crisis. It's all there. The mention of neoliberalism might be really upset if there wasn't in a document like this. Um, but there's some other parts I just... So there was one part as well where they talked about Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael using the war in Ukraine to kill off neutrality. I mean, I don't think it's right to say that a party is using a war in Ukraine, like the death of so many people so barbarically, to change their policy. Um, so I disagree with that. There's another part, and I don't mean to be um, make it about me or be personal about it, but it's a quote that caught my eye. Um, I have it here, actually. It says, Imagine for a moment the reaction in the Shelburne Hotel bar or the Port Marnock Golf Club to the news that a left-wing party or Sinn Féin will form the next government. A mood of fear mixed with horror would overtake the gathering. 
Now imagine the reaction in Darndale or Crumlin, working class suburbs in Dublin. There is celebration and delight, a feeling that against all the snobs and experts, they have elected their government and that a real change is coming. Now, I grew up in a working class area in Dublin. I grew up in a council estate in the south inner city. And I just thought that's the most reductive thing I've ever heard. It's a ridiculously simplistic way of painting two different communities, Port Marnock and Crumlin. You can't presume to know what's in the hearts and minds. That kind of You've stuff. You've been contaminated by the time spent in the Shelburne Bar, though. <laughs> See, I don't actually drink in the Shelburne Bar. <laughs> and several other bars, expensive. should be said. <laughs> I'll stick to my local. I won't name the local for fear of my life. But uh, no, I'm just kidding. But I just think stuff like that is incredibly reductive. And uh, that, to me, takes away from any of the positive or realistic or genuine points that I think also exist in the document, quite frankly. The contrast is interesting to me, Pat, between... We were discussing just before the break social democrats, how do they differentiate themselves in a fragmented uh, left political landscape? And now we're discussing the same thing as about PBP, and it's a very different approach, um, as as Jen says. Uh, to be perfectly honest, it looks to me like the approach of somebody who isn't actually interested in power. I wouldn't say it's true that people for profit are not interested in, in power, um, but they're not interested in participation in any immediately imaginable government. I mean, the idea that they would, uh, you know, they would... Does that not amount to the same thing? Not necessarily, no, because they believe that there's power on the streets as well. uh, uh, And that's a more valid and important uh, sort of power than uh, than that exercised through government, I think. Um, I think uh, at the root of all this is the fact that many of the people before profit... Uh, seats and some other left-wing independents uh, as well, and we discussed it with regard to the Social Democrats uh, earlier, are going to be under threat from uh, a, a Sinn Féin vote that is very likely to increase uh, in the next uh, in the next election. And if you go through the constituencies, you know you can see uh, you know where the where the seats uh, will be will be in danger. So I think you know this is about you know trying to. Uh, assert the identity, the authentic left identity, as they would see it, of the uh, of of people for profit over Sinn Fein, and but to do that in a way that is consistent with their own revolutionary ideology and the you know the that the traditions of that strain in 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 left wing politics, which is you know, entirely, uh, entirely valid. I mean, they're absolutely entitled to argue for a revolution, just as we're kind of en- entitled to take the piss out of it a little bit. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, th- I, I think this is as much about the immediacy of the next, the next election and the precariousness of some of their seats as it is uh, about setting out their stall for, uh, for the workers' revolution. Okay, that's that, that's very interesting. We will leave it there. Before we wrap it up, um, we always like to choose an article of the week from irishtimes.com. Uh, Jen, you've been looking at the latest remarkable chapter in the remarkable, never-ending story of Matt, Matt Hancock. <laughs> yeah. uh, um, sorry, I just, I just every time I think of this piece, I just I can't stop laughing. I just think it's hilarious. So Mark Paul has a piece on Matt Hancock's leaked WhatsApp messages. The Mark Paul's piece went up um, online yesterday evening. Uh, it's the most distracting thing to happen when you're on deadline. Um, but anyway, 
I loved his description in the piece of how these rumours have been swirling around London media circles that the Telegraph had this massive story and that there were staff were like in the secret bunker um, and everybody's wondering what happened. As a journalist, I was just like fascinated. But anyway, anyway, that's a, that's a bubble thing. On Tuesday night, the lockdown files were released. It's an investigation into the British government's handling the pandemic. Ten no, 100,000, I think, not 10,000, contemporaneous WhatsApp messages between Matt Hancock and loads of other people. So there's so much in there, but the one that I picked out, it was a lot of unguarded stuff, which really get the, the measure of somebody. Although if anyone saw my WhatsApps, I'd probably be fired. But anyway, um, I should say this all emerged thanks to... You know you said that out loud, Jen. <laughs> delete everything. No, don't <laughs> worry, there's nothing there. Um, so this emerged thanks to Isabel Oakshot. So she's a British political journalist. Mark Paul said in his piece she's a penchant for making herself part of the story. Anyway, one particularly embarrassing exchange between Hancock and Gavin Williamson, who was the education secretary at the height of the pandemic. So there's loads of tensions about keeping schools open. And then Williamson messages Hancock to suggest teachers were looking for excuses not to work. Hancock then <laughs> called the union reps a bunch of absolute arses, to which Williamson responded, I know they just really hate work. I mean... <laughs> How embarrassing for that to be out there. But I have to say that's anybody who hasn't seen that piece and you're looking for something to make you feel better about any mistakes you made during the week, go and have a read of that. Yeah, and I will say, I think that uh, if, if people remember The Telegraph had another huge trove of documents a few years ago about abuses of expenses and it drip fed them. Uh, like a sort of toxic drip feed into the arm of the British body politic for about six months, <laughs> just causing endless yeah. chaos. So looks like we can expect more of that. Pat, what was your choice? Yeah, I picked a piece uh, that was in yesterday's uh, paper by our colleague Harry McGee. Um, it, it, it concerned um, a Facebook uh, group in, in Loud and uh, some quite shocking abuse in that Facebook group about a Labour Party councillor, Michelle Hall, who had the temerity to speak out against uh, anti-refugee rhetoric in, in the locality and to speak out in, in support of some refugees that had uh, come to the area. She was, uh, she was then treated to a barrage of sustained abuse on this Facebook group, which um, I, I guess people can easily imagine the, uh, the tone that it took. Uh, Labour complained uh, to uh, the owners of Facebook uh, and, and they said, um, you know, uh, tough luck doesn't violate our community standards. She's a public figure and uh, they have to uh, put up with this sort of abuse, basically, is what Facebook uh, said to them. And I just think in the, in, you know, the context of the discussions, and Jen has written, of course, extensively uh, about this, Holly Kearns has spoken about it, about the uh, abuse that politicians, particularly women politicians, and they're often singled out for uh, particular types uh, of abuse, uh, online. Uh, I mean, in, in one way, it beggars belief that Facebook can say, you know, suck it up, you know, man up or whatever. Um, but in other words, w we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is one of the reasons why our political discourse online is becoming so toxic and why decent people are, you know, being scared off potential careers in, uh, in, in, in politics and making a contribution uh, to, our, uh, to our politics and making a contribution to ensuring that we are you know, better run or better governed. People are being scared off from that and this is part of the, the reason for that because the social media giants refuse to, uh, are, are, are happy rather, uh, to tolerate this sort of abuse in the, in the name of making money for themselves. 
No, I think your point is well made. And I don't think this is going to be able to stand much longer, actually. I think the culture is changing and I think laws are going to change to to recognise that. And not before time. Uh, my my article is 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 much lighter. We we had a kind of a rule for a while not to be picking articles by Dennis Staunton, our man in Beijing, because mm-hmm. there were so many of them. So it was just... Oh, wait a minute. Is the ban the <laughs> The ban is ah, up and I, I've lifted the ban <laughs> for this very reason because Dennis's piece in the Irish Times today, Dennis, it's it's spring in Beijing uh, and according to uh, Dennis, Beijing has more uniforms than Vienna in the last days of the Habsburg Empire and they reflect the changing of the seasons. The, it's it's tip, a typically wonderful piece. I just want to quote uh, one particular passage from it. He says, One skinny young guard outside a building I pass most days often looks as if he is about to disappear inside the huge winter coat that comes down almost to his ankles. He seemed more comfortable this week, however, in a brown tunic with a berry tilted downwards over his right eye like Greta Garbo in Nanotica. (laughs) And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Dennis Saunton in Beijing. We're going to leave it there. Thanks very much indeed to Pat and to Jen for joining us. Uh, Our podcast was produced by Declan Conlon and it was engineered by JJ Vernon. We'll be back with you next week, but until then, have a lovely weekend and thanks for listening.